0: It's fitting, of course, that um, that I am standing before you my first Sunday on what is traditionally known as Low Easter Sunday. Low because it follows the glorious heights of Easter Sunday with all of the flowers and the timpani and brass and, you know, overflowing churches. Although you did a pretty good job this week on the crowd, I have to say. Usually Low Sunday is about 20% of the normal Uh, group. People are off doing their after Easter thing and besides that our choir. You didn't play the game on low Sunday. That felt more like high Sunday to me, so thank you for that. Um, It's by this confluence of God currents we have been brought together. We find ourselves now in this flow of faith, sort of like a lazy backwater eddy at low tide. Actually, Low Sunday's not so bad at all. I like Low Sunday. In fact, I like it so much because I don't have to preach it usually. As the pastor, we usually let our associates or someone else preach on Low Sunday while we're off doing a continuing education, like one of my friends who did the pastor's masters this past week in Atlanta. <laughs> Low Sunday's not a bad thing after all. On low Sunday, the tide drops and you begin to see the river for what it is. You see more of the bank. You see more of the bait and the clam and so forth. And you can also see all of the debris left in the river that we need to clean out on low Sunday. Switching metaphors. While there are times for mountaintop eurekas, generally the Bible in my experience and my own experience teaches that faith formation forms from the ground up than from the top down as a shout out on earth sunday from the earth just as we were created out of the ground not from the boardrooms and winning columns and delusions of our rightness and our greatness with that in mind let us hear the word of God. O Lord, help us to see your greatness among us in the lowly estate of our humble lives and not from the highfalutin places we think make us so good and great. Amen. In the Gospel of John, we know this passage. It's the Thomas passage in the 20th chapter of John's Gospel, verses 19 through when it was evening on that day it was the first Easter it was the first day of the week and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews the religious authorities is a better translation Jesus came and stood among them If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, although we don't know whose brother or sister he was, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him when he showed up, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were shut, not locked this time, Jesus came and stood among them and said again, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him and them, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is the word of the Lord. So they say that um, seeing is believing. But I have to say that in today's passage, it's the exact opposite. It's believing is seeing. We know that's true because of the world we live in and all the many opportunities where we see that believing is seeing. The election was stolen, or it wasn't, depending on what you believe. Masks and vaccines matter depending on what you believe. You see what you believe. Because what we believe to be true is now true in our world. That's the problem with misinformation on both sides of the aisle. It just keeps feeding what we believe to be true. And we often make many of our belief awareness Truths based on what we innately or reflectively or intuitively think is true. It's always been true, therefore it must be true. Take this morning's passage. No matter how many times Jesus had told them in John twice, not counting what he does at the Last Supper, In Mark, it's three times, no matter how many times Jesus had told them that he must be arrested and suffer at the hands of the Jewish authorities and then be crucified only to rise again, no matter how many times they could not believe it and therefore could not see it as true. In this passage, it takes an epiphany. Born in Jesus' wounds and suffering that opens their eyes to the crucified and resurrected Lord. How could they forget? You'd think somebody would have remembered. Oh, yeah, remember that time he told us? I mean, they, they were just there three days before in the upper room and, and Jesus tells them over and over and he celebrates the last supper and then, he, and then he celebrates the Lord's Supper, the first Lord's Supper where he takes the loaf of bread and he breaks it And says, this is my body broken for you. Hello. And then he takes the cup and says, this is the new covenant poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. There it is over and over. And then he explains to them again what will happen. He then has this first communion service. And then he girds himself with a towel and he kneels down at their feet. And Peter doesn't like it because anybody with a towel kneeling at your feet is the lowest of low That's not for Jesus, Peter thought. But what he's showing them again is his own servant love. His own willingness to get on his knees. Then he offers them this huge farewell discourse, which is four chapters long in Mark's gospel, explaining exactly what's going to happen again and what it means, and then ends with this wonderful prayer to God, holding us up, holding them up so that God will protect us during the hard time of his crucifixion and our own suffering and pain and will help us see again the resurrected power of God's love. Still, here they are, huddled and scared to death in the upper room where they had started three nights before. Why didn't they remember just that morning, in fact, Mary had gone to the tomb to anoint Jesus and found it empty. And so she runs back and cries, they have taken away my Lord. We don't know where they have put him. And the disciples are startled and Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, we don't know who that is, run to the tomb and Although Peter's second to get there, he's the first to go in and he looks around and sees the cloths thrown on the side and he figures, yep, she's right, they've taken him away. And the second disciple goes in and he sees and believes, it says. But what he believed, of course, was just like Peter. Yes, somebody's stolen the Lord. They go back to the room, knock on the door, they are admitted, and and they say, it's true, they've taken away our Lord. But no sooner do they get there than Mary shows up knocking on the door saying, I've seen the Lord! Telling them the story of Jesus coming to her in the garden when she thought he was just a gardener until he called her by name. And the only way he could have said it to her, in only his way, Mary. Mary? Then she knew. Then she saw. Then she believed. That was the resurrected Christ. And she goes back to tell the disciples this. And as Kate so beautifully preached last week, they thought it was an idle tale. It was just gossip nonsense. All of that. All they knew was that he was dead, because that's what they believed. All hope was lost. Evil and sin win. And it's coming for us. even worse than their sin i mean their their grief even worse than their fear was their shame for they had all abandoned him all even peter in his denial they all denied him and even worse than that was their grief for they had lost the one they most dearly loved and they knew most dearly loved them what they believed was what they saw. I hope you haven't had the daunting and terrible and excruciating task of returning home after having lost a loved one. You don't want to go back, but you have to, and you get in the car, and you mope along down the road, and you finally get to the driveway, and you pull in, and you can't really breathe well, and you're mouth is dry and you sit at the at the steering wheel and you say a prayer for energy and strength to take the journey and you finally open the door and sort of crawl your way through the back porch to the back door which is the last place you saw her before the accident the day before you walk into the kitchen and you see there's the laundry basket with her clothes just like she left them and there's the newspaper on the kitchen table just like Just like we let kitchens, sinks full of dishes. uh, It's all the same. It's all exactly the same. Yet it's completely different. Completely different. Because what you experience is the space is empty. For the energy of the spirit of your loved one is no longer present. It is as if a huge global cosmic vacuum cleaner came in and sucked out her energy spirit and all you feel is emptiness and vacuum. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great theologian in the 20th century wrote, nothing can make up for the absence of someone we love It's nonsense to say that God fills the gap. He doesn't fill it. But on the contrary, He keeps it empty and so helps us to keep alive our former communion with each other even at the cost of pain. Our former communion with each other even at the cost of pain. You see, for the disciples, it is just that cost of pain the scars and wounds and suffering made real to them in Jesus' hands and side that opened them up again to the very presence that he was the resurrected Lord. He shows up in the evening out of thin air. As if Scotty just beamed him into that place, only His atoms and molecules were so mixed up that they couldn't recognize him. He was not just an ephemeral spirit. He was a different kind of embodiment, not locked into time and space, yet embodied nevertheless, the same body but different, still with his scars and his wounds. He passes the peace shows them their hands, his hands and his side. Then they get it. They had no idea who he was until he showed them his scars. They get it. They see. It's his cross wounds that served as the DNA for them to find in a positive identification. And when they saw it, they finally rejoiced and began to sing. And regardless of the Fear, regardless of the worry of those outside, dance and sing like it was Pentecost. They saw the Lord. There's a story of the old sexton in a church who was wiser than most of them. And as the administrative assistant was preparing the Easter bulletin, he happened by the office and picked it up to look at it and threw it down on her desk and said, nope, it's not going to work. She so said, what do you mean it's not going to work? He goes, it's not going to work. Why? There's Jesus with his hands outstretched, he said. But there aren't any nail holes. No nail holes? No Jesus. He knew. That's the identification mark. This is universally true, you see. It is that place where we and others reveal their deep vulnerability that we find ourselves seeing them truly as they are and connecting. Way before Brene Brown came became everybody's second favorite word. I'm not sure what your first one is, but way before Brene Brown, she got everything she got, not just from her practice, but from her practice of faith. It's grounded in Scripture. She, the good Episcopalian, knew that. It's universally true. And later they would remember, as would we, when we sit at table in communion, surrounded by the great saints. We take a loaf of bread and we break it and the body of Christ and pour it out, and then we are connected with all the saints in heaven and on earth who proudly proclaim His name. And we sing the Sanctus. And we're in communion again around the pain and resurrection of Christ. It's not just the recognition of his wounds, of course, that Jesus needed to give them. It was his promise to them of a new life out of death, not only for himself, but for them too. The recognition is only half of it. The rest of it? Jesus knows that he needs to bring them back down to earth so he passes the peace again and gives them their marching orders. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. This is Matthew's go out into the world, the end of his gospel. And then he breathes on them the power of the Holy Spirit, and this is Luke's Pentecostal passage. And then he gives them their specific mission, reconciliation and forgiveness. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you don't, if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What he means by that, I think, is best interpreted in the, message, the messenger translation If you don't forgive sins, then what are you going to do with them? And we know what it's like to carry around the burden of unforgiveness. What are we going to do with them? We're going to throw them under the bus. We're going to to hope for for their hurt. We're going to wish them bad. That's what we're going to do with them. But it ends up being our greatest burden, not theirs. So here it is. The story could end. The resurrected Jesus shows up, shows his wounds. Wow, it's Jesus risen. Next thing you know, they're getting sent on a mission. The new life of hope and discipleship, inspired by the breath of the Holy Spirit. Their feet on the ground. Now they go in communion and reconciliation and forgiveness. Story over. Probably should be, in fact, but. What's with Thomas? What's with Thomas? He's not there. The story can't end until Thomas walks in. There can't be full communion unless Thomas is part. It begs, where was he? There's no telling. He he was either so scared that he dug a foxhole for three days and refused to move, finally getting enough courage, or I think maybe... He was one of the true believers that was walking up and down the highways and byways and farm fields because he remembered Jesus and said, "I will be raised from the dead." And he's calling out to Jesus in order to, to find him. I think maybe that could be true too, so, because we call him Doubting Thomas. Oh, Doubting Thomas! Bless his heart. It's it's a, it's a bum rap. It's a bad moniker. Thomas didn't doubt any more than the rest of the disciples. He wanted to see the wounds and the scar just as much as they did. And and not only that, he wanted to be in even greater solidarity with it by, by willing to touch it. In fact, I think doubt gets a bun wrap. Now, too much doubt is awful. You become a cynic, you don't believe in anything, you're completely atheistic about anything... You just walk around in a cloud of doubt. That's not the way to live life, doubting everything and distrusting. Too much doubt is bad, but too little doubt, I think, might be worse. For doubt is that place in us that calls us to be contrite and humble, reminding us that we do not know everything. And that we, in spite of the fact that we want people to think, are not certain about it all. That deep down in all of us, we struggle with it. The issue of faith is always fed by the ground of doubt. As Fred Buechner says, doubt is the ants in in the pants of faith. It keeps us dancing and moving and growing and learning. As you're lovely, wonderful um, Sarah I forgot her name, Coffin? Kali preached six years ago. Frida sent me her sermon for you Sunday where she confesses her doubt right in front of everybody. She's however old. And tell me that didn't bring us closer to her and to ourselves. You see, you cannot have deep faith formation without also the process of doubting it from time to time. And Thomas, he gets the same thing the disciples did. The sending, the going. Then he sees. You know, I think we do too on some level see. We discern If we believe enough, we can can see. We can can see a glimpse of the resurrected Christ if we have eyes to see, if we believe. Beyond our prejudices and presumptions and assumptions and certainty. God, I hate certainty. More harm and evil has been done in the name of of, of being right and certainty than anything else. Think about it. If we can see past that, we can discern Jesus all over the place where two or three are gathered together, where we, where we share communion with each other in his name through love and compassion and service. Even if you don't believe in him, he's there. As you feed the hungry and clothe the homeless or reach out a hand to someone in need, the presence of Christ is there if you have eyes to see. You can see him in and through this good church when you open yourselves to the world as you do, and your woundedness. And I know you're hurting. I've I've heard from you how you're hurting and you're worried. I mean, you've lost your beloved Alan. Joanna, probably the best interim in the world, falls and breaks her back, and she has to resign. And now you got me. I understand you're worried. But if we can share together our woundedness and worry and anxiety and suffering, not too much, but enough, we can bind together. I know, I know Jesus is here because, because uh, um, Leslie McCracken, there's no one who could have done it better, gave Anita and me a tour of this church uh, a week ago, I guess maybe two weeks ago maybe, And uh, she showed us everything. She showed us every closet, every bathroom, every drawer. uh, And she showed us the 64 ventilation things in the library ceiling. and, And as we're walking past the memorial garden, I was stunned by the powerful Celtic cross coming up out of the ground, standing watch. Over those ashes and memories. And I asked, Wow, who gave that cross? She said, I don't know if you knew Sally Laurie, but she was at your church. I said, I knew her. And I knew she died. I said, Yes, she died here. And the last thing she wanted to do was to, was to will that cross to us and be buried in that garden. You tell me that cross is not a symbol of the crucified, resurrected Christ standing watch over the lowly of the low buried in the ground there who are now not there but as the cross points with us even still in this great cloud of witnesses. We can see it if we believe it. Amen.